What is the role for America now? Is now finally the time for us to mind our own business? Is now the time for us to allow others to lead? Is now the time for us to play the role of equal partner? Whose world is this? The world is yours. The world is yours. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Whose world is this? It's yours. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Friday, May 4th, and that was Senator Mark Rubio, you heard at the top, talking at the Brookings Institution. On the show today, we look at the 21st century world, a volatile world in which some countries are going to thrive and prosper, others struggle and become poorer and poorer. That is coming up. But first, the Planet Money Indicator with Jacob Goldstein. Hey, Jacob. Hi, guys. Today's Planet Money Indicator... 115,000. The U.S. economy added 115,000 jobs in April. This, of course, according to the, the big monthly job report that came out this morning. And let me just say, this is a bad news indicator. Even though we added jobs, it's bad news. We added jobs. We did not add nearly enough jobs. 115,000, that's about enough to keep up with population growth and Probably even more important than that, when we look back at the past several months, we see job growth month after month is slowing down. Back at the beginning of the year, the economy was adding well over 200,000 jobs a month. In March, that fell to about 150,000 jobs. And then now we see it fell even more for April. So that's a bad trend. Is there is there any indication that maybe it's just sort of a momentary thing? It's a temporary downturn? We'll get back to creating more jobs in the future? We, I mean... Certainly, I hope so. Everybody hopes so. But one key thing in my mind right now, a month ago when I did the last big jobs report, that one was also disappointing, right? It was also a slowdown. And I said then, I said on the show, let's hope this is a blip. And what really counts now is what happens next month. So today, this show, this is next month and it's worse. So yeah, it could be a two-month blip. You know, recoveries are sort of jagged. But a two-month blip feels less blippy than a one-month blip. So, you know, it feels definitely bleaker now than it did a month ago. That said, it doesn't mean, you know, we're going to fall back into a hole again. Things could turn around next month. And, you know, you could say, well, gas prices seem to be coming down. That's good. And there were some weird weather things and some weird seasonal adjustments. But I don't know. Two bad months is worse than one bad month. That's, that's basically what I can say. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks. Now, on to the show. So, Adam, you talked to uh, our old friend Ian Bremmer. He's somebody who has appeared from time to time on the program. He's an expert on geopolitics, and he runs Eurasia Group, a think tank here in New York. Last time we had Ian on the show, he was talking about his last new book, which seems like not very long ago, but now he has a new new book. Um, they're both roughly around the same theme, which is basically that for most of recent modern history, there has been a clear structure to global politics. You know, it was the UK. Then it was the Cold War with the Soviet Union and the US with their massive spheres of influence that determined local events everywhere. Then for the last 20 plus years, the US has been the clear economic, political, military leader in the world. But now we are living, Ian Bremer argues, in a fundamentally new world. And so it's a unique period in modern history, a period in which the world has no clear global leader, no clear military leader, no clear economic leader. And that's a radically new thing. And so what Ian is writing and thinking about a lot is, what does that world look like? And you talked to him about something very specific, Adam. Right. I asked him to take me on a world tour and help me understand, so which are the countries that are going to thrive in this new chaotic leaderless world and which are the countries that are going to suffer? 
it used to be that you, if you wanted to pick a winner, all you needed to do is find those places, those countries, those companies that were best able to adapt to and align themselves with U.S.-led preferences, U.S. globalization. If they did that well, they won. And that was that simple. Like you look at Argentina and Chile, it's not obvious that Chile is going to be the better, stronger economy, but Chile was very aligned, aligned. With, with U.S. political interests. And, exactly. Yeah. And that was easy. Um, and in this environment, in a G0 environment, the reality is whether or not the U.S. is in decline, we're not going to bail out the Europeans. We're not going to bomb Iran. We're not going to lead a global climate deal. We're not going to remove Bashar Assad from power in Syria. It's a very different way of thinking about the world order. All right. So, so I just want to go around the map real quick. Sure. So, so walk me through. Who are the obvious winners of this new globally leaderless world? I think Brazil is absolutely one that does they do they work with the United States very well but they also they have you know both great demographics they have a lot of commodity wealth and everyone wants to be in um you look at Africa almost all of sub-saharan Africa pivots well it used to be that you had a bunch of countries the chinese would go in and make a deal with a dictator and they'd you know sort of try to lash up the commodities that was it and now you have these countries that are urbanizing they're getting more educated and everyone wants into their markets and they are pivoting very effectively so all right so obvious winners then i'm assuming the Sort of the BRICs, broadly speaking, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Russia no. and China are not obvious winners. Huge volatility in global markets means you want bets that are safer. You want countries that are more resilient. Russia and China are much less resilient than Brazil and India. The Chinese have a system that must be completely transformed economically and probably politically to continue to grow. That's less resilient. They have a system that requires an absence of, of uh, transparency. I mean, you look at the Bo Shalai case. And Alex, let's just jump in quickly to explain. A lot of listeners, I'm sure, have heard this name. I hear it as Bo Shilai, but Jess assures us it's Bo Silai. He was a high-ranking communist official in China. There's just this amazing cinematic story of murder and intrigue. But f f the important thing for our conversation is the investigation of it revealed a level of horrific, unbelievable corruption at the highest reaches of the Chinese Communist Party that has shaken the party to its core. And it also revealed that Bo Xilai has a lot more money than anybody imagined. I mean, you look at the Bo Shalai case, this guy that we already know is worth $136 million and probably vastly more than that, a second-tier communist official. Imagine what happens in China if WikiLeaks hits them and you find out that all of these leaders aren't just engineers but are also billionaires. What's that going to do? How much do you want to bet on that? China's not a winner in this environment because people that are scared and people that understand the world is more volatile will be willing to put less money at stake in an economy like China. Just to explain that moment. So I'm I run some global business. Let's say I'm, yeah. you know, I'm placing factories for GM or something around the world. I look at Russia and I'm thinking, are they going to steal the factory once we build it? I look at China and think, wait, are the leaders we're partnering with going to even be there? Are they going to be like hanged on a spike before long? I'm, I'm nervous about it. Whereas I look at India, US, I'm guessing Brazil, South Africa, maybe even Ghana, and I'm thinking, okay, Whatever happens 10 years from now, there's going to still be a legal system. There's going to still be cops on the beat. I'm going to be able to make money from that factory. So it feels I'm, more comfortable. In China, you know, 50% 50, 50 plus of millionaires in China say that they'd like 
um, to eventually live in the United States. Uh, you know, Russians take all of their money, they don't reinvest it in Russia, this enormous capital flight. When you have, you know, hard dollar capital flight out of a country or human capital flight out of a country, that, that's, that's generally a strong bet that they're not that resilient. So, so I'm assuming Brazil, Chile, Mexico, good news for them, Venezuela, Argentina, pretty bad for them? I mean, people are pretty nervous about them, I'm uh, Venezuela, Argentina, definitely nervous about them. Mexico, nervous insofar as the fact that they, they basically are just a bet on the U.S. So over the long term, if the U.S. does not invest for its future, if it doesn't deal with the deficit, if it becomes more protectionist uh, because of internal divisions in the country, Mexico really has nowhere to go. Some of the Central Americans... They don't have the do, options that others... The, Mexico can't pivot. Uh, there's no question. Uh, Canada can. It's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's so fundamental because these two countries that we think of as these great allies of the United States, but actually one has options and one really doesn't. And why is that? Well, Canada, uh, if, if uh, Obama decides he doesn't want to do the Keystone XL pipeline, I know 1.3 billion Chinese that would love to build an energy bridge to Canada. Um, I was with the Canadian foreign minister recently, and he started his conversation with me by saying how proud he was that his first trip as foreign minister was to Beijing and not to Washington, because the United States and Europe, as he put it, was ultimately in, in decline and, and decay, and that Canada's future is in Asia. Now, I, I, the, the point of you, whether or not you agree with that is almost irrelevant. The point is that Canada has options in a way that a country like Mexico doesn't. Mexico, you can look at tourism to Mexico, it's all U.S., you can look at trade with Mexico, it's all U.S. Remittances from Mexicans living abroad, all U.S. Drugs that are being bought from Mexico, all U.S., right? So good or bad or indifferent, it doesn't matter. Mexico is going precisely nowhere if the U.S. does not continue to surface very well. Canada has options. That actually matters. Now, what about the Middle East? I mean, obviously, the Middle East is going through insane changes. Is, you know, whatever emerges in, in, in Libya, in Egypt, in in Syria, who knows, um, you know, what, what's emerging in Iraq. Uh, I honestly don't know even how to describe. Well, I think there are two things to say. The first is, since the Arab Spring started, you look across the Middle East, the only country I can point to that I would say is on a definably positive direction right now, trajectory, is Tunisia. Think about that. Tunisia is a tiny and marginal So you're talking economy. about 300 million people. What are there, like 6 million in Tunisia? I think a little that, less. No, less than yeah. yeah. Across the entire region. It's astonishing. And, and then furthermore, the United States isn't playing the role it used to in the Middle East, right? Who is going to help define outcomes in the region? And the answer, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Turkey. What do those three countries want? Completely different outcomes. The Saudis support Sunni Arab monarchies. The Iranians... They support largely disenfranchised Shia populations. The Turks, they support more secularized urban middle classes. As those three countries have more political, economic, and security influence across the Middle East, you will find that sectarianism becomes the driver not of integration but of fragmentation in the Middle East. The Middle East does particularly badly in the Gezira. All right. And that, now let's go through, through Europe. Um, Spain, Italy, Portugal, the struggling parts of, of peripheral Europe. I'm just going to assume bad for them. Bad for them in the near term. Uh, difficult because, again, no one's going to support Europe except for the Europeans themselves in this environment. There's no extra money sitting around for geopolitical stability out there. No. I mean, here's a point where if the Chinese were prepared to become a true nascent superpower, they might say, wow, a strong euro is good for us. And so let's go to Europe. 
and let's figure out what the quid pro quo is. They'll end their military embargo on us, and in return, we'll give them all this money. We'll create a strong euro together with the Germans, and we'll have hedging power against the United States and the U.S. dollar. The Chinese have absolutely no interest or willingness in doing that. The places that I would love to hear uh, will benefit are, are the poorer but emerging and frontier markets, you know, Bangladesh being sort of the classic example, but Vietnam and who knows, Myanmar, now that they're becoming part of the world a little bit. Um, it's hard for me to think of anyone in Asia who's a clear loser. Are they most – is it mostly winners or – There are a lot of winners. Uh, but in order to win over the long term in Asia, you do all – you still need to be able to pivot. Uh, Mian- and they're all China-centric. And, and well, it's what's interesting about Asia is China drives economic integration. But the United States drives political and security integration. So how long will countries be able to balance those things? Will they all be able to balance effectively? Um, There's no question that you look at a country like Vietnam, and right now it's pivoting pretty darn well. Indonesia, I think, will pivot very well. Country like Bangladesh, probably too. But there are some countries, Myanmar would love to be able to attract lots of investment from all over the world. But the reality is the Chinese will probably be the dominant player there. And that will limit the ability of Myanmar to really grow up. You know, I, I, I've been saying a lot lately that for most of U.S. history, we were able to pretty much safely ignore the rest of the world. I mean, the average American didn't really need to think about anything outside of the U.S. if they were worrying about how their career was going to go, how their industry was going to thrive, whether to buy a house, what their kids should you know, study in school. It, it was largely a closed economy. And then the last you know, 30 years, 40 years, we've been open and open to the world. And the rest of the world has become incredibly relevant. Are, are we going back to a world where we just don't have to care that much about the rest well, of the world? the rest of the world is incredibly relevant. The, the debate out there for the last several months, all of these books, all of these folks, these, these very smart individuals talking about whether or not the U.S. is in decline or not, that's been a conversation that has been almost exclusively about the United States. It is the wrong conversation, right? Because it doesn't matter what your answer is on whether or not the U.S. is in decline. We are not doing all of this global stuff we used to. And, and they know that. So let's stop with the narcissism and let's recognize that the world has changed dramatically and we need to position ourselves accordingly. Ian Bremmer has a new book that just came out. It's called Every Nation for Itself, Winners and Losers in a G-Zero World. Send your suggestions for books you think we should read, people we should interview. Email us at planetmoney at npr.org. Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, Tumblr. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. The world is yours. The world is yours. The world is yours.